The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. But it was sort of piecing this together off of various videos um, because we didn't have any context. But we knew now, okay, there was this this incident that he was involved in. What he had said in the paperwork that day is that he was punched and then hit with a pole. And that's sort of what he had described to his wife as well, that he was hit and then also he got hit with a pole later that night. There are two sort of separate incidents. And so from there, they were able to identify a DC chiropractor who was wearing this distinctive uh, jacket, uh, this motorcycle jacket, when he stormed the Capitol, which was sort of surprising because, you know, you wouldn't imagine someone who lived a couple blocks from the Capitol getting sucked into this, but he was just sort of in that conspiracy world and uh, had posted things about you know, the election and it being stolen, was a big sort of COVID denier. And so he had you know, even done an interview, I think, a man on the street interview the day after January 6th, talking with a reporter about how he was on the steps, didn't say he was inside, of course, um, but he was really deep in the Capitol and they used facial recognition initially with that hit. Um, and then found all this confirming information, including the jacket. I'm Roger Parloff, senior editor at Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare podcast, November 14th, 2023. Last month, an amazing new book came out about the prosecutions stemming from the January 6th Capitol siege. It's called Sedition Hunters, How January 6th Broke the Justice System. I sat down with the book's author, Ryan J. Riley who is also the justice reporter at NBC News. We discussed who the sedition hunters are, how Ryan stumbled across them, and why they've played such a crucial role in the January 6th investigation. It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 14, Ryan J. Riley on the sedition hunters. Before we get to the book, let me just get a little background about you, Ryan J. Riley. Where are you from and what did you do before you became a justice reporter for the NBC News? So actually, I was from New Jersey originally and I always sort of knew I wanted to cover the Capitol. So I went here for college um, and then afterwards I graduated in 09. So not the best market to graduate into for uh, looking for a a gig. But um, I ended up getting uh, sort of an initial job at Bloomberg, worked on a a research project there, sort of a temporary thing. And then um, I saw a posting for uh, a job um, at this website that no longer exists called Maine Justice. Uh, and it covered the Justice Department and the way I sort of got through the uh, the vetting process for that uh, for that gig was that I knew the name of the Attorney General as opposed to some people who uh, had interviewed who didn't. Oh so that's sort of what got me um, stuck. <laughs> that's sort oh, of what wow. got me sucked into the justice world and I've been covering sort of ever since. Yeah, that's a, that's a deep uh, bit of experience to draw upon. Yeah, yeah. So the book is Sedition Hunters, How January 6th Broke the Justice System. It's by public affairs. So who are the sedition hunters and how did you first learn that such a group existed? It actually started for me with a Twitter joke. Um, I There's this video of Rachel Powell and she was – at the time, no one knew her, what her name was, but she was known online as Bullhorn Lady. Um, and there's this video of her sort of on a bullhorn, obviously, hence the name Bullhorn Lady, going through the broken window, sort of talking uh, with other rioters in this tone that you sort of strike up with children. It was almost like she was sort of, you know <laughs> – chaperoning a, a field trip uh, to the insurrection. Uh, and she said, you know, OK, guys.
guys, if you want to take the capital, we're going to have to work together. And so I made some joke about how the, you know, five, 20 bucks says this results in not only criminal charges, but a PTA resignation. <laughs> um, and there, there, shortly thereafter, I ended up getting a message from um, an individual I now know as Forrest Rogers, who's really the only named sleuth in the book. And he had identified this person working with a team called, you know, Deep State Dogs is what they call themselves. And that's because Forrest has a little puppy of his own. He's a big dog fan. So they had identified them. We're trying to this individual, and we're trying to figure out what to do with that information. So that's sort of what got me initially in the door, and then sort of stories sort of fell out from there. And the first big story that we worked on together, um, after Ronan Farrow kind of scooped me with the Rachel Powell story, <laughs> involved uh, Danny Rodriguez, uh, who was the individual who drove the stun gun into Mike Fanone's neck, uh, the uh, DC Metropolitan Police officer, on on January six, um, and he was known as Taser Prick. Um, and after our initial story in February of 2021, uh, the FBI um, busted in his the sliding glass door in his backyard uh, a month later. So you did a story about him before he was arrested? Correct, yeah. And did you name him? We did. How did your NBC lawyers uh, <laughs> react to that? I was at HuffPost at the time. Oh, oh I'm... Yeah. And I think that – I. Th- in those initial days, I think there was a lot more of a reason to be naming people who weren't arrested yet. And I have a different position on that now um, in that like now, in fact, just this week, there's someone – in fact, today when we're recording this, there's someone in New Jersey who the FBI went to go arrest and he's now on the run and can't be found. And this is an individual who was identified more than a year and a half ago. So it becomes a little bit more complicated when you have – you know, this notion of they might flee that might make law enforcement's job more difficult. And like, I kind of have more complicated feelings about that now. But initially for these, uh, these stories, I think like getting the, those names out there and, you know, sort of spurring action when the FBI was buried in these cases, um, there was a journalistic sort of imperative uh, to do so and tell these stories of, you know, before they sort of fell through, fell through the cracks, because the Bureau is just overwhelmed with the number of tips that they had um, received. So it was a little bit of a slog to get it through the lawyers, but it it wasn't also that bad because we had people willing to say, I know who you know this person is, and I'm confirming that this is him in the video. And the, you know, you could just confirm it with all of the various materials and pins that were on his hat. Hmm. This, you know, it wasn't a, a huge secret that this guy was a huge Trump fan, had this unique look, these unique hats, and then there he was on video committing the crime. Yeah, and I should say that you know, I've uh, in the course of my own reporting, I've met you know, a few reporters that are really steeped in these cases, you know. But you are one of the very few that is steeped in the cases that haven't been charged <laughs> yet. You know, that's a, a different thing. Yeah. And uh, that's a, a unique thing. Now, was there somebody that was sort of uh, first among equals among the sedition hunters? You know, I think that from the get-go, they sort of self-policed a little bit themselves. There's certainly a, still a divergence of opinions. They There's people who don't get along within the community. But early on, they sort of all did agree upon the rules in terms of not naming people on social media and vetting these cases either by sending them into the FBI or by working with journalists. Um, and that was something they sort of all got around because we saw how this played out really poorly, this sort of online research, this online, you know, um, <laughs> this online investigating in the Boston Marathon bombing when people were falsely accused of of being associated with that horrific crime. Uh, so that was something that I think everyone was sort of on the pa- same page on immediately. You know, now it's really important. I mean, it's it it, it's it's sort of remarkable that this group was so responsible, uh, so self policing, like you say. Yeah, yeah, it really isn't because that's you know how things can just go really haywire. And that's also what I think has built up this trust with the Bureau, where the nice thing is, because this is all open source information that the SLUs are turning in, is that the FBI can vet this themselves. And you know, the easiest way for them to do that often uh, to confirm that, hey, this person actually did go inside the Capitol is to just check their geofence warrant mm. for all the phone numbers <laughs> of people who went into the Capitol that day. Easy way or mm. just, you know, check their credit card statements. There are a number of ways to confirm this. Uh, but they can also just vet the open source information on their own and look at it and say, yes, this I can see how you followed this thread. I can see that, where this checks out. One of the guys that seems to be uh, among the most important is uh, a guy you call Alex in the book. Can you talk a little about him and his app? 
Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there are a number of these sort of tools that were built in the aftermath, including some of them that were publicly available online for people to search through materials. But, you know, Alex, I think, really did play a critical role here in helping everyone organize behind the scenes. And I think the easiest way that I've sort of talked about this to describe what you can do is to think of, you know, go to your iPhone. And if you go to any photo on your iPhone and you swipe up and if it's of your kids or it's of your family members, everyone will have their own little bubble. Everyone will have their own little face. And then you click on that and it'll show you everyone, every photo of that individual in your gallery. And that's essentially one of the things that I think the SLUs have been able to do really well is get all of this material together in one database and then search it relatively easily using internal facial recognition. So there's the internal facial recognition that just brings up these images very quickly. And then there's the external component of it, which is that they're using sites like PimEyes uh, to identify people in the real world who were there at the Capitol on January 6th. But they don't they – I, I don't know what that PimEyes is. Yeah. So PimEyes is this – it's this tool that basically you can put your photo into it and then it'll find any photos of you online. So for me personally, oh it's creepy. Uh, for <laughs> How me, do you spell that? Pimeyes. P-I-M-E-Y-E-S. I see. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. And there's other websites that do something similar. But you know, this, this is only about a dollar a day, like 30 bucks a month. I think you get 25 searches a day. And what you and, and for me, it turns up a bunch of photos of me on Capitol Hill questioning lawmakers, uh, like photos I've never seen before. Some photos I probably wish didn't exist; they're just <laughs> bad angles. <laughs> and you know, there there are images of me. Even if half of my face is covered, it'll pick me up. Even if I'm wearing a, a face mask during the COVID nineteen pandemic, it's still got oh my me. God. Sunglasses, it's got oh, me wow. in before when I've been outside. Um, so it really does like do a really tremendous job. But the slews don't rely on that alone. They always have that sort of confirming other information. So they'll find an item of clothing. So, you know, there's the one case I talk about with Logan Barnhart, who was found with the app. And he uh, was a former bodybuilder who was working in construction in Michigan when he stormed the Capitol um, or tried to storm the Capitol and dragged a police down the stairs. And he was pretty well covered up. So nothing was turning up for him at first when they were entering these photos. And then there's one image that he was actually at the ellipse during President Trump's speech. And it's just a very quick, quick video. Someone very quickly pans over the crowd, but he's standing right there. And in that case, he had his sunglasses sort of strapped to his shirt as opposed to on his face, gave them the full face shot. Then they ended up running Pim Eyes, I believe, used on that. And then it turned up all of these um, romance uh, <laughs> these romance novels where he was <laughs> the cover model of. And then they sort of worked backwards from there, found all of these images of him uh, working in these various um, you know, bodybuilding competitions and, and went from there. Um, so it really is pretty useful. And um, Alex, it turns out, voted for Trump. Alex did vote for Trump. And that was a little twice, bit of a surprise. Twice, in fact. Twice, yeah, the <laughs> second time too. Um, he was not a fan of Hillary Clinton, um, but he is one of those uh, sort of, I mentioned, he is one of those uh, swing Obama-Trump voters that you hear so much about. Uh, <laughs> and it's, yeah. So, uh, you know, I think he's a successful guy. So I think a lot of this was just sort of economics for him. And he was a, a, a tech guy or yeah. a software guy. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So does the DOJ still not have such an app? Not that I'm aware of. I think they have something that they're using, uh, but it's not, I think, as as high tech. They're still very much so relying on the SLUs for a that's lot of a, this. That's amazing. And even, and, you know, I mean, personally, for me, it's like a lot of this, I now have, you know, saved all these videos that come out through the court process. I have these all saved. I have them on my own computer, on my own, you know, sort of network. And then, but like in order to, even if I remember a video, then I have to think back, okay, what case was this associated with? I'm not going to remember that. What, you know, how, and how do I pull it up? It's just a lot easier way to surface these videos if you can just like, you know, if you have it organized in a way like mm. photo, your, your iPhoto library, for example. I see. How many sedition hunters are there, would you say? You know, it's tough to put a number on. I think in the early days, I mean, dozens is usually sort of the default that I, that I go to. I mean, in the early days, there were a lot more people who were deeply involved day to day. I think now there's more of a core group um, who it's boiled down to. And, you know, the IDs are still coming in. But <laughs> the thing that always still shocks people when I say, when I tell them is that there are a thousand people who could be arrested who have not yet been arrested right now who are identified. That's just the people who are identified. The FBI has right now 
a thousand names hmm. of people who have not yet been arrested, who either stormed the Capitol, who assaulted law enforcement officers outside, um, or who engaged in property damage. The total number of people who could be arrested, that's add another thousand onto that. So it's more than 3,000 is the total scope, but there's a lot of those who haven't been identified yet. And so that though you know there's a thousand people still to identify, but those ones are the ones that are a little bit tougher, I think, to break break through at least for the slews based on what they have publicly available. Mm-hmm. The FBI from time to time has asked you not to publish names. Is that is that right? And the, yeah. and the slews themselves, right? Yeah, and I think that that's you know been. I I mean I've thought very. I've thought through this a lot, right? At the beginning of – especially in the in, in 2021 at some point, it was not a January 6th case I should say. Uh, but there was an instance where uh, FBI agents were shot and killed. And I think that that has been something that's been hanging in my brain ever since. Oh, wow. Um, and like the last thing that I would want is for – me to write a story, you know, and get some, you know, oh, it gets great. It's a fun story for a day. But then that causes something to happen or that causes someone to be prepared for something. And we've seen instances, you know, there was an, a January 6th person, a January 6th defendant in Texas who found out that the FBI was arresting him. It's unclear why, but his case was not sealed to begin with, as most of these cases are. It was just publicly filed on the docket. He got a phone call, found out, and went into this the spiral and ended up shooting at police officers when mm. they showed up to his house. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, a lot of these people, especially who believe sort of bizarre conspiracy theories about the 2020 election, aren't the most mentally stable folks. And I think that, you know, that's sort of something that I've had hanging in my head is that we want to make sure we prioritize safety, right, over our, sort of everything else. And I think especially at this point, now that we're almost three years into this investigation, the names, I think, especially for the more violent offenders, is like not necessarily something that you need to. I think there, there. Are, I should say, I have done other stories since, but it's it's been those more misdemeanor cases where there's they're a public figure of some consequence, right? So we had there was an elected official um, in Connecticut who stormed the Capitol, and that was something that there's a public interest there. But you know, it's it, it's. I think there's definitely a way a balance that you have to sort of play out when you yeah, decide on these cases. For yeah. sure. To get back to – there is a scary aspect about, you know, having these citizens out there. Uh, you know, you could imagine, you know, Project Veritas people having some sort of project of their own. I mean, quality control is so important. Yeah. And do they sort of exclude some people who, who want to help or do they just sort of ignore? How, how does that work? I think they vetted the people who – but it's interesting because you know they don't even know each other a lot of the time, hmm. right? They but they know each other's track records, and they know like so. Even if you don't know who a person is, which is in my in my case with a number of the slews, I know them just by their handle. But I know what their history is, and I can also check their work. So you know these are people now who I've been working with for more than two years. Hmm. Who and if if someone you know if. Guy, you know, if 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 some if someone with some handle comes to me and I'm like, oh yeah, I know, I know this person, I know, you know, their history, I can trust them on this, and they can show me their work, and I can check it out and vet, vet it myself, and which is really really helpful. That's the great thing about this open source world is that you don't you're not placing your full trust into anonymous people online. You can check the you can check the math, so to speak. Do they communicate with one another just like using hashtags over Twitter or do they have signal chats or yeah. Telegram or what? A lot of it's behind the scenes now. So Discord is a big uh, platform where they all sort of organize um, and talk to each other. And yeah, that's – and most of it's happening behind the scenes and then there's the public-facing component of it. Um, but you, what we've seen more recently, especially after that first year, and I had written about this at the time as we got into 2022 – you saw a little bit of a pivot in terms of, okay, they've already identified these people and now it's a little bit about putting public pressure on the FBI to make sure that they bring it home. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the case of an individual in Long Island who is the co-owner of a funeral home that he inherited from his family um, and stormed the Capitol with his his son who was also an employee at the funeral home. He used uh, uh, wasp spray to – assault officers that day. I should say, I said, they, I don't believe that they got inside, but he assaulted officers with wasp sprays, what he's been charged with now. There was a guy uh, named Chris, or maybe it's a woman uh, named Chris. <laughs> uh, you're uh, ambiguous about that. But 
uh, that person eventually, he's a, they're a sedition hunter, and uh, eventually they, uh, they really develop a relationship with the FBI and, and they're get, they get some compensation. You know, I'm not sure the scope of the co- – what we know from the affidavit is that there is something there. But like also it could have just been re- reimbursements. You know, I don't want to say – you know, if it's I, – I don't know. I haven't asked Chris what level of uh, – I just knew that from the sort of a public filing. But that was really – yes. So they are this key sort of middle man or middle woman in this role where basically a lot of things things are funneled through them. Um, and they would be – they've said that you know, they would be willing to testify if necessary in any of these cases. The thing is, is that I think unless a defense attorney really pushes this issue, there's really no reason for them to have to testify uh, because you can vet all this information on its own and you can verify it in, in various other ways uh, without relying upon someone who basically played sort of this role in bringing a lot of this information from the SLUs to the FBI. But – when I met them in late 2021, they were very much so surprised by how big of a role they were playing. And they knew they were playing a big role, but the scope of it, I think, really took them aback. And there's this moment, and some of this is just like, I remember it happening, and I just was like, you can't write this, right? So they are sitting there, and they're wearing a, a <laughs> like a detective hat, and <laughs> they're sitting there. And they and they mouth, like talking about how big of an impact that they had. They mouth huge, like in this almost Trumpian <laughs> fashion. And I'm just I, I, after leaving that, I'm just like writing down. I'm like, yep, okay, yeah. Like it's just so many of these things that you're like, you can't write this. It's hmm. it really is incredible how much uh, of an impact I think that the slews have had, and hundreds of names still to come. There was one case that I was aware of as it was happening, just in terms of the. The the results. I, I, I it was we were together watching the Proud Boys yeah. uh, trial from the uh, media room in the courthouse, and uh, just to explain to the readers if they don't remember, uh, you know that five people are on trial, and at the top three defendants are obviously very crucial Enrique Tario and Ethan Nordine and Joe Biggs. But then the next one, Zach Reel, seemed like a notch below and his lawyer was doing an effective job of making it sound like he was in a different category and and emphasize he's not charged with assault. He's not charged with destroying property, you know, not he didn't break a window or throw a water bottle. And he elects to take the stand uh, during the defense case. And uh, the direct ends on a uh, Friday night uh, evening, and he has testified, yes, I never assaulted anybody, I never broke any, you know, I never destroyed any property. Take it from there. (laughs) (laughs) The direct ends, and we know that on Monday, the government will start its cross. Yeah, so it was this long weekend, and I uh, the the attorney in that case was essentially trying to burn time. I remember because you didn't want the jury to go into the long weekend with prosecutors having the last word. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. what happened? So basically, it was a very sort of slow day, uh, getting through these questions, asking questions sort of repeatedly in different ways, and not really make <laughs> not literally learning anything new. It wasn't the most exciting. I think. For, Thursday or Friday or whatever it was, um, and then bring in the long weekend. And then as they come back, uh, suddenly there's uh, new information <laughs> that the uh, that the the prosecution has that the defense only learned about just before, probably 10 minutes before this cross-examination happened. And this wasn't something that the government withheld. It was something that the government didn't know about and hadn't found within their own discovery. It was also, you know, video it was also buried in, I think, the discovery that was available to the defense. But I mean, without getting too deep in the weeds, you're not going to typically be in a situation where a defense attorney is going to put someone on the stand knowing that they assaulted a law enforcement officer, but that the government doesn't know about that yet, right? Like this was not – this was a situation where Zachary Real kept that information to himself, where he knew what he had done – pointing that pepper spray can, but he did not disclose that to his defense attorney. He did not, and the prosecution didn't know about it. So he was this close to getting away with that, right? And he still wasn't charged or even convicted of that. It was used as, in sentencing, to 
heighten his sentence a little bit. But that explicit attack, he was not charged with. And so, you know, they get to question him and they show him this video and he just sort of falls apart on the stands and on the stand and he defaulted to the uh, the the answer about whether he assaulted anyone. He said, not that I recall, which is oof, just one of those moments yeah. where you're like, okay, yeah. pretty sure that's something you remember, bud, but okay. <laughs> yeah, that was a, an amazing moment. Oh, yes. And with that one, of course, it, it was crucial. By that point, they have a relationship with the government so that they yeah. can get the information to them. I imagine in the beginning, reaching the government is not an easy thing. You know, they're over yeah. – over, I mean, they've, they've taken to using email addresses for assistant U.S. attorneys now. They've like set up – like so they get this information. They make sure it gets to them. They, a lot of the SLUs do have these contacts directly at the FBI now. But what you were seeing in these early days was just this getting dumped into this database. And just think, I'm, just think for a moment about getting hundreds of thousands of tips. It's hopeless. It really is. Even if you – you need to set up some sort of mechanism to get through those in a timely fashion. And there's still the rest of the world happening. So it's not as though, you know, the FBI stopped having to deal with, you know, school shooter threats and whatnot that were coming into the National Threat Office. They just got a whole bunch of these tips that are sitting in a database somewhere that most of them haven't been sorted through. Often I'll see cases now where the SLUs will have pushed the FBI on something. But instead of relying on the SLUs, they'll just go back and they'll find in the database from two years ago, oh, yeah, like one of their you know college friends or something or their high school friends turned them in or a classmate or something like that and base the entire case off of that um, and then use the open source stuff as well. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Uh, the first I became aware of these guys, it was, just, I would be tweeting, you know, live tweeting, and the prosecutor would mention a new name I hadn't heard of that wasn't a care, you know, wasn't a defendant, and I would misspell it, and then I would instantly <laughs> get, you know, a reply with the correct spelling plus twenty to thirty photographs and video <laughs> links, and and uh, I began to get the picture. One thing I I, I noticed though, it, it, initially it put me off, but you you explain it in the book. There's these sort of usually nasty nicknames that they have for each person, you know, like uh, Taser Prick or Pink Beret or or, or uh, Bullhorn Lady. Yeah. But those actually serve a purpose. You you explain. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the reasons that the FBI hasn't ident- like hasn't identified a lot more people on their list because I just think of it. I think I mean think of it from a journalist's perspective. Right now, if you go to the FBI's capital violence website, you're going to see 540-something in in that range, over 500. But if you just like add a photo of someone at the Capitol and it's maybe just like two still shots of them so you don't really know what they were doing and you say, hey, we're looking for information on number 537, it's not going to get any media Mm, attention. mm, No one's going to – I can't write a story on that. Like I – I don't even know what the headline would be. <laughs> um, it's there's just not a lot of information to go off of. But you know, if you give this a nickname, it all it helps you remember it. It also helps it stand out. And you know, it's just something that trigger. It's a lot easier to remember that than oh, number two fifty nine or whatever their AFO or assault on a federal officer number is that the FBI gives them. Um, and I really can't imagine anything for that the non nickname policy other than sort of politics because. I mean, they do that with bank robbers all the time. They give them these goofy nicknames and they get all of this local media coverage and people get identified off of that. But like how how do you think Jim Jordan would feel about the uh, <laughs> them giving nicknames to people in a, in a MAGA hat, right? Like <laughs> right. it just gets real dicey real quick. Right. Um, so um, – but like, you know, the, the ones that have gotten the most attention are kind of the funnier ones. Pink Beret is an example of that mm-hmm. where the FBI added this person with a pink beret. 
and it just went super viral. Uh, everyone was making fun of it. Everyone was coming up with these nicknames about it. On the one hand, you had people who thought the FBI was you know, overreaching. On the other hand, it's just sort of, you know, you had both the left and the right sort of like talking about this. It got a ton of views. It blew up. And the way this person was identified is because two guys are standing in line at a Joanne Fabrics uh, with a guy getting a part for his sewing machine. He's a clothing designer. And his buddy's looking at his phone on Twitter and says, <laughs> check this out. Shows it over to him and the friend looks and it's his ex-girlfriend. Oh, my God. So then they turn that in. He turns it into the FBI, ended up speaking with him afterwards. And he had all of this, you know, information identifying her. And then she was subsequently charged. She's living overseas, so has not been arrested yet, but hmm. she's been charged by name. And I should say her now husband has also been charged because he was involved in um, some, some of the assaultive conduct there. Oh, wow. And – so you know a lot of people that have not been arrested that were involved. You understand in most cases why they haven't been arrested yet? No. <laughs> no, I think uh, there's a variety of different reasons and none of them are usually satisfying. I mean, there definitely is a political element to this where there are field offices that just aren't that enthusiastic about January 6 cases. Varying levels of enthusiasm is the way one law enforcement official sort of diplomatically described it to me. But, you know, we have a number of these quote unquote whistleblowers who have come forward now um, and have made these little media careers off of disparaging the FBI's work on January 6 cases. You know, people have quit over these these cases. So I think the and if you just look at the people, the you know, the feeders into the FBI, it makes sense. I mean, you know, if you were to go back to the year 20. 15 and say the FBI is this liberal haven, people would look at you crazy, right? We've gotten this sort of now expectation because of the sort of these relentless attacks, I think, from from Donald Trump, as well as some mistakes that the, the Bureau have made and some information that's come out, you know, in these inspector general reports and whatnot of the FBI. But it's just like a little bit, it's a lot different from, you know, what uh, what I think then the, this idea that's being sort of batted around by Donald Trump in, in the media is because, you know, it's a generally still a conservative leaning organization. It's a law enforcement organization. Um, so I sort of think of it as more sort of like, you know, center right, if anything. Yeah. They, the uh, sedition hunters also got involved in one civil case in a sense. This was the... Uh, the case of uh, Jeff Smith's yeah. wife mm -hmm. or Jeff Smith. Uh, talk about that. Yeah. So that was really sort of wild. Uh, the way that this started was that I writ written a story about the sedition hunters and one of the readers happened to be married uh, and law partners with uh, a lawyer who was representing the widow of Jeffrey Smith, uh, who died by suicide nine days after uh, the January 6th attack. And she was really struggling and the family uh, was struggling to get information on what exactly happened to Officer Smith that day because they were sort of being stonewalled by the Metropolitan Police Department. Uh, and so they asked sort of the sleuths to get to work to find him in the footage of that day. And it took a while, but they eventually found using the number that he was wearing and using a photo that was provided, they eventually found him and said, OK, here's where he was. And from there, we're able to get various angles on that initial uh, sort of squabble that he got into with these these riders as they were trying to push these riders. I should give a little more context. After Ashley Babbitt was um, shot and killed, they were trying to push all of these riders out of the Capitol. Uh, Jeffrey Smith was in that fray. Um, and there are two individuals who are close to him. One of them was, was holding a weaponized cane. Um, and there's this moment where he sort of goes down in the crowd. And so a weaponized cane meaning uh, yeah so it's a cane but it has like a an edge to it it's meant to be used as a as a uh, weapon uh, you know so there was these two individuals it was but it was sort of piecing this together off of various videos um because we didn't have any context but we knew now okay there was this this incident that he was involved in what he had said in the paperwork that day is that he was punched and then hit with a pole and that's sort of what he had described to his wife as well, that he was hit and then also he got hit with a pole later that night. There are two sort of separate incidents. And so from there, they were able to identify a DC chiropractor who was wearing this distinctive uh, jacket, uh, this motorcycle jacket when he stormed the Capitol, which was sort of surprising because, you know, you wouldn't imagine someone who lived a couple blocks from the Capitol getting sucked into this. But he was just sort of in that conspiracy world and uh, had posted things about you know, the election and being stolen, was a big sort of COVID denier. 
And so he had, you know, even done an interview, I think, a man on the street interview the day after January 6th, talking with a reporter about how he was on the steps. Didn't say he was inside, of course. Um, but he was really deep in the Capitol. And they used facial recognition initially with that hit um, and then found all this confirming information, including the jacket. And then there's another individual who's actually the webmaster of a county GOP over in Washington state. And for some reason, it took a very long time for that arrest to come about. And the way it actually came about was because this individual, Taylor Toronto, had heard about videos from being offered the opportunity to view January 6th videos um, that former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy had sort of opened that process up. So he came to D.C., came twice, in fact, and then he came back again and was hanging out with other January 6th supporters by the D.C. jail who were even like some of those supporters even were pretty creeped out by this guy. He was just a little bit off. And then Donald Trump posted a true social message that included Barack Obama's home address, at which point the next day after he posted that, Taylor Toronto shows up. Um, and apparently they had been sort of monitoring him and weren't, were trying to get him arrested. But then there was a bolo out for him. And like he was arrested. He was like running into the woods. Um, looking for tunnels to get into Obama. He had guns in his uh, his van. van, Right. And was like live streaming himself the whole time. So that was an arrest that could have been made, though, like almost a full two years earlier. And it was unclear. Um, And the craziest part of it was when his co-defendant in the civil suit um, that was filed before any of these criminal charges came about was actually sentenced. Uh, I'm sitting in the back row and all of a sudden the door swings open and Taylor Toronto walks in um, and it was just this another one of those sort of things where you just like you can't write this and you know and this was before he went to Obama's house but he was there and he was doing something on his phone so the marshals eventually sort mm. of like pulled him out and he identified himself by name right so there was just like no mystery here but you know the marshals don't know who this guy was didn't realize mm. you know what what had ha- happened there and there was no warrant out for his arrest at that point wow so despite the impression I've given listeners so far, the book actually goes about 200 pages before you get to the sedition hunters. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so it actually has a very ambitious scope, the book. I wondered, what what was your... uh, working title. Did you know all along it was going to be the Sedition Hunters? Yeah, we discussed other titles afterwards, but my working title had always been Sedition Hunters. I think what sort of changed during the writing process was, frankly, I thought that the January 6th committee as much as as good work as they did sort of focusing, I think, in getting the nation to understand what Donald Trump had done and, and that sort of thing. There was a lot of work that was left on the table in terms of the law enforcement failures. And from what we understand from talking to you know committee staffers and and whatnot, it's it's because they were worried that, that of that would distract from the underlining core message. And you know, Liz Cheney, especially, and the Democrats were very much so about focusing on Trump. And I think that that was a missed opportunity um, in terms of examining what took place um, mm. in the lead up to January six. And so there was a lot of this raw material that I just felt like wasn't fully explored. And even just going through it myself, when I was doing the reporting on this, I just learned a ton of stuff that I didn't know. Um, because I went through, you know, thousands of pages of FBI documents that have been turned over via FOIA, a lot of the interviews, the raw materials from the January 6th committee um, that were turned over. Thankfully, that was all made public, although not as closely examined. So it really, I thought, was important to sort of lay out why domestic terrorism is such a trickier issue for uh, the Justice Department and for the FBI, what the sort of political reality was in the lead up to the attack, basically explaining how could we get in this situation? Because especially when you see all of these conspiracy theories now floating out there in the world, like I think the constant thing that I come back to is you're just wildly overestimating the powers or the abilities of federal bureaucracy sometimes. And I think that sometimes just like pulling people back to just like the the daily, you know, sort of just – work that goes into this and just the bureaucracy that sort of weighs a lot of this down can like get us back to a more reality centered place. Hopefully, if you realize that like, no, there's not some grand conspiracy with like this one guy, Ray Epps, who like started all of this. (laughs) 
It's just like it's it's explained by the bureaucracy. Why bureaucracy is usually the answer. Mm. And it's not to say like this is the lawfare podcast. I should say it's not to say there are not great people working in government, but the the bureaucracy is a real issue here and a real thing that is holding I think holding back a lot of a lot of the government's work here. You mentioned a 2009 Department of Homeland Security study and it sort of for me encapsulated some of the some of the problems that were encountered. Yeah. Explain that. Yeah. So this was like early Obama era came out and like it got in this memo from DHS that got vetted at a bunch of levels and it basically just laid out like, you know, here's the reality. First black president. There's a lot of people who are angry about that. Military veterans might sort of be a threat, something, you know, that that extremists could recruit from military veterans and like it's sort of stuff right wing extremists right wing extremists yeah mm-hmm. like this is this could be a real issue and it's a it's a threat and like now it's like duh like <laughs> like, like it's been completely proven correct by like i mean just look at the statistics of the people who stormed the capital and like military veterans are way out not you know overrepresented in in that group um you have a lot of people who really hooked on to this sort of you know patriotism narrative in 1776 and taking back um, the country that just comes up in all of the you know again and again and again and again and so it but it was like it was amazing how quickly the you know the Obama administration caved on that even though it was sort of well it was an it wasn't you know it shouldn't have been controversial it was just sort of laying out the facts um, and it's been proven right by history but they caved very quickly because you saw a lot of these attacks from the right wing and I think that you know, there's this real hesitancy to speak plainly about the threat and there's this real hesitancy to sort of create these false equivalencies. And the moment that really crystallized that for me was when the head of the Washington field office for the FBI, the head of the intelligence division for the Washington field office for the FBI was being asked about the threats in the lead up to January 6th. And she you know, eventually conceded, yeah, we were seeing a lot more rhetoric um, in the lead up of January 6th. And then they start to ask the next question and she just interjects very quickly on both sides. And it's, <laughs> to me, it's like, what the hell are you talking about? Like there were not Joe Biden supporters like plotting to storm the Capitol to like, it just, it just didn't compute. Like I, the, I, I wish there was a follow-up question on this. Like explain, like, what are you talking about? What, like how, what are Democrats threatening about January 6th? Like dem- they're, they're certifying the election that Joe Biden won. So it just doesn't make a lot of logical sense that they would be that there would be a lot of a bunch of threats in that era. You you had a quotation from one guy, I forget I forget his position, but he said so there wasn't a lot of credible specific threats, but there was a vast amount of non-credible unspecific threats and that should have prompted something, yeah. right? And 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 I think that really encapsulated some of the challenge and and uh, yeah, some of the missed opportunity. It was, it was the volume that really stood out there, and I think that that's the problem is that they were approaching like, okay, what's the enumerated violation of a federal criminal statute in right, this exactly. particular instance, and how would we charge this, and have we charged it before? When in like, you know, or they sort of were doing these as one offs, and they would send out somebody to talk to a threat actor or something, right? So they would just send someone out to investigate someone who got sort of labeled in the domestic in the domestic extremism realm um, who was making threats and okay sure you're stopping that one person but like that's like killing an ant right like it's not like okay congrats yeah. right like it's just not like that's not what the what the issue is the issue was the volume and that also the you know the fact that this was all emanating ultimately from the white house who was telling them the people like and they and they just couldn't be honest about that in terms of like saying like okay the president's filling a bunch of people's heads with lies like the, cut out the crap cut out the you know the in between it's like a lot of people believe an insane conspiracy theory and some of them might do something about that yeah 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 it's a national security threat being caused by the president. Right. And that's sort of a – Who wants to write that memo? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, And then the subtitle of the book is How January 6th Broke the Justice System. And what do you mean by that? I think the volume has really – so, you know, I should say, of course, the justice system thus far I think has – uh, has done a good, like, good job of the. Of, we've gotten these huge, seditious conspiracy cases off the books. That's, uh, you know, obviously a huge win. Um, but I think just like they're, they will, like, the volume is going to defeat them here. We're not going to get to a situation where they're going to charge all of these people. It's a question of whether or not they will get all of the, the violent actors. Um, and even then, you've sort of seen, 
you know, it, it like it's been undermined. We've had these people from within the FBI now make these sort of themselves sort of these mini media moguls by complaining about January 6th cases. And, um, you know, I think that it's a tough situation for any system to handle just the volume of these cases that are going through. And it's just not always the in individual cases, I think that that has been very successful, but it's not sort of this cure-all for the political ills of the country. It's not as though like the justice system is always going to work in terms of like holding the line. There are broader issues here that you know I think that have have come up that a, a court system and the justice system are not really equipped to fix ultimately. You have some incredible anecdotes in the book that sort of. Uh they just illustrate something that goes beyond the specifics. And one of them is this moment where the QAnon shaman, uh, (laughs) it's after 4.17 p.m., you know, after Trump uh, sends out the uh, video (laughs) saying, go, go, you need to go home. You're, you know, we love you, but you need to go home. And so the QAnon shaman is leaving and there's a woman that won't believe that it's his voice. <laughs> and, Donald Trump's and, voice, yeah. And QAnon Shaman is the voice of reason <laughs> yes. saying, it's a f- effing video, <laughs> you know. And she's saying, it doesn't sound like his video. It doesn't sound like his voice. I think it's pre-recorded, <laughs> you know. And it just captures who these people were, yeah. that, you know. Then, like that's when you have like, – and I think it was even one of the officers uh, who was charged um, – Shane, Lam- uh, who is it? The officer is Shane Lamond. Shane Lamond, yeah. yeah. Um, one of his communications was like talking about like when Alex Jones is the voice of reason. <laughs> like, right? <laughs> yeah. like, was, I was like, oh, it's got something there. Because that was the situation where Alex Jones was like the one, okay, guys, like, right? Yeah. Like, it's like, it reminds me of that meme. It's like, you know, we're all trying to find the guy who did this. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, like, right. you know, the, you see the consequences of his, of like years of action, you know, build up to this moment where just there's no trust in institutions, there's no trust in, in the media and people are willing to believe these sort of bizarre conspiracy theories that have, have sprung up online. And there, there's another very disturbing uh, little anecdote, which is the uh, a Facebook, a new Stop the Steal group opens on Facebook using a video of the angry mob at the Detroit TCF Center where, you know, supposedly where I guess Kelly Sorrell had reported back that, you know, a a van carrying video equipment arrived and she decided that it was a van full of stolen or, you know, uh, fabricated uh, ballots. But it created a Facebook group that gathered 320,000 members in 22 hours. Yeah. Uh, I mean – it's incredible. The the trajectory of these groups was just like wild. It, they really did take off like wildfire. I think that the the TCF Center was just really illustrative to me because I ended up wa- – I watched a lot of these at the time. But then for the book, I ended up going back and sort of watching as much of this video as I could. And it was just like everyone was so geared up to, like that there was just fraud happening there. And I think that we don't speak as clearly as we should about just like the underlying just racism that's all – this is all built off of because that's what it was. It was like, right, you know, no one no one had to question what Donald Trump was saying when he was talking about certain areas in, mm-hmm. in 2016. It's all built upon this idea that there's just like massive criminality at, right. you know, urban or however they describe them polling places. And, you know, logistically, that's just not that if you just look at history, you look at all the studies, like there's not, this is, it's not, (laughs) it's not a crime that has tremendous amount of personal benefits immediately. Like, just like, why would you commit a crime that like, you don't even know what the impact of that would be on the other end, if it's even going to impact the race, especially for a race like president, the the voter fraud schemes that we have seen have always been about these like really local races. It just doesn't make a lot of sense that you're able to like steal an election like on that scale because the numbers just don't get you there and you're not even sure what state's going to matter. So anyway, this underlying assumption of criminality has really been, I think, an issue. And you really saw that playing out in Detroit because there are a bunch of people who just went in there and were like looking over people's backs and just like 
looking for criminality everywhere. And in reality, they were just like, you know, suburbanites who had never been to the city before, or like were never, right? And like were hanging out with people they were uncomfortable around and mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. just got very, you know, sort of ginned up on a lot of that. Um, and some of the, I mean, the complaints in the way that they were worded, it was like, you know, a man wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt of intimidating size and just like almost sort of, it was like parody. Like one woman pointed out, like she literally didn't write that just she was a pregnant woman. She wrote that she was a pregnant white woman, mm. like as though that was like some factor. And it's like, what are you? Mm. It was just very strange that like how this all played out. Um, yeah. And I think you saw that anger sort of breaking through where it was like they thought that they were going to win. They thought that anyone voting in, in these cities was like uh, was a cheater or a liar or something. So it just fed this really nasty um, yeah. and racist dynamic. I think there were two strains. There was uh, Giuliani's was the racist strain. You yeah. know, it was Philadelphia, De- Detroit, Fulton County, uh, Milwaukee. Uh, and then there was the Sidney Powell sort of tin hat yes. strain. And, right. and, uh, and actually the tin hat one, we c- because it was through Dominion, could – Anywhere. Reach the whole country. Right. So, yeah. You had these two strings. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was just, I mean, just bizarre when you look back at some of this stuff. And like the thing that I think doesn't really break through to people and you wished it at the time, because this is even something Bill Barr brought up to Donald Trump after the election is that like you look at Philly, Donald Trump did better in Philly. He did better in Detroit yes, than yeah. he did in 2016. Yeah. It's the suburbs where like, <laughs> yeah. like, like that's what changed, right? He was more, you know, that was, he, he bettered his numbers in the cities than um, he did in the suburbs. Well, I'll give you one uh, last chance here. Uh, uh, is there something I haven't asked you about you wish I had? Yeah. I mean, I think that like I, – I, I mean, I listen, I learned a lot doing – I think writing this book and especially about the lead up to January 6th. And, you know, so if I learned something, I hope other people will as well. well I learned um, a ton. It's, yeah. Uh, oh, great. Uh, we're we're going to have to leave it here. But um, thank you, Ryan. It's a, it's a great book. It's a great accomplishment. I hope you're proud. Hope your mother's proud. (laughs) And uh, thank you again. Thanks so much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter through our website, lawfaremedia.org slash support. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Pachahal, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.